Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with documentary filmmaker Caroline Burler on her film, Dyke's Camera Action, a history of lesbian cinema. That's all coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In the early 90s, film critic B. Ruby Rich coined the term New Queer Cinema. Among the films she cited were Poison, RSVP, Young Soul Rebels, Edward II, Swoon, and the Living End. Directors included Lori Lind, Todd Haynes, and the great Greg Araki. Later on, other films included Brokeback Mountain, Milk, The Kids Are Alright, and even Blue is the Warmest Color. But many of these films still focused on the gay male experience until you had filmmakers like Rose Troche uh, coming in with her great film, Go Fish, which ushered in a new era of LGBTQ filmmaking. Filmmakers such as Rose Troche and even Ruby Rich are among those interviewed in Dyke's Camera Action, the debut documentary feature from director Caroline Burler. In it, She tries to examine the history of queer cinema from the women who made it happen. Other interviewees include Sue Friedrich, Vicky Du, Desiree Akavan, Cheryl Dunny, and the woman who many feel is the mother, the godmother, the grandmother, whatever you want to put it, of all underground, independent, lesbian cinema, Barbara Hammer. Some films looked at include the aforementioned uh, The Kids Are All Right, Go Fish, Uh, And one of the films that I remember seeing as a kid that stuck with me, but I'm a cheerleader. The film is Dyke's Camera Action, and the director is Caroline Burler. This is her first film as director, uh, but she's worked previously as an associate producer on such films as Susua, Make a Better World, and a film that I want to get my hands on, Jews and Baseball. An American love 
story. Uh, She's also serving as editor on the upcoming Mama Gloria uh, and has worked on one episode of Independent Lens called The State of Arizona. But like I said, her debut as director is Dyke's camera action. And I just want to preface this by saying, yes, uh, obviously the film is called Dyke's Camera Action, and we do talk about that word, Dyke. I use it. She uses it in discussing the larger aspect of lesbian culture, LGBTQ culture, and, and certain stereotypes surrounding that word. Just putting that out there. Anyway, without further ado, here is my conversation with Caroline Burler. How's the quarantine life? Not bad. I've worked from home for a long time, so I'm sort of all set up here. And, you know, it could be better, but yeah. luckily I think the worst is over for New York City. Where are you located? Uh, I'm in, uh, yeah, I'm in Victoria. So, like, there's Vancouver, right? And then there's the little strait of water. And then there's Vancouver Island, and that's where I am. So kind of like, you know, like an hour and a half couple hours away from seattle kind of area yeah yeah cool well you guys got the earliest uh cases over there yeah but victoria is actually for all of canada victoria is probably the safest place to be that's good um but yeah vancouver did get the early hit just because of of sort of where it is located in relation to the states i think and because it's on the coast a lot of people were flying back home and that's where they would come into, right? So, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna put this on do not disturb because, of course, anytime I start a call, everyone I know calls me. <laughs> right, <So>. I know. <laughs> I, I I just got back from Vancouver um, yesterday because you know I went away for a couple of days and was trying to organize, you know, seeing all my friends, and then I don't hear anything, and then they all message me right at once saying, "Hey, like doing," and I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so I'm on airplane mode. I think I think we're good. All right. Well, uh, the film is uh, Dyke's Camera Action. Um, how did you first come into the idea of of doing this project about sort of the the history of lesbian cinema? Well, I grew up in Texas. Um, I did not know many gay adults, any gay adults for that matter. And so I, I was really into movies. And one of the ways I started to discover uh, LGBTQ culture was through film, um, through different movies I'd see at Blockbuster or um, at, you know, watching HBO late at night um, at my parents' home in Texas. And so then fast forward to when I was in uh, getting my graduate degree at at, uh, School of Visual Arts. Um, I was looking for a thesis project to do and I 
recently had met um, by chance Rose Trochet, who was a really uh, important uh, filmmaker during the um, 90s. And we met sort of by chance. And a few months after that, I called her up and asked if she would do an interview because I had this sort of an idea of making a film. And I thought she would be a, the perfect person to start talking to as I discovered the history and learn more about it. So it's sort of a few different things came together and and I just thought this would be the, the best project for me and and it really worked out. The the film sort of structured almost like a like a retrospective because you start even in like the fifties and sixties and then you get to great films like But I'm a cheerleader, which I remember watching, you know, um, and then later on the, the kids are all right and then even into into Desiree stuff. What, was that always the plan in terms of how you wanted to tell the story and the structure? Was that it, it was going to be sort of the history of cinema told within an hour? No, it, it kind of became what it was organically. Um, so after I talked to Rose, my initial idea was like a tribute to my love for films of the 90s. And because I was such a fan of the independent film movement, and I just loved movies from that time. But once I talked to her, I realized that there was a much larger story here and I would need to go back further um, to discover the true beginnings of this history. And she recommended that I speak with Barbara Hammer, who's considered the true pioneer of lesbian cinema. And she sort of started it all uh, in the 1970s. And so, once I started talking to more people, connecting more dots, uh, an arc sort of formed, and I would I realized that I wanted to do sort of starting in the '70s and taking a little you know brief mention of the pre Stonewall films, and then this big turning point after Stonewall and the women's movement, and then bringing it up to today's filmmakers and looking at uh, you know all the sort of looking at a few filmmakers along the way. Um, and so that's sort of how I approached it. You know, in, in, in the early 2000s, you had people like Greg Araki, for example, who became one of the faces of like new gay cinema or, or, or new queer cinema. Do you, as someone who made this film, do you distinguish between queer cinema and specifically lesbian cinema? Or is lesbian cinema sort of a part of the greater queer cinema? definitely a, we're all part of the same community and that word queer really started as a political statement to um, bring people together but so so often what happens when you group everyone together is that certain voices are heard over others and it's it's um the women sort of often take a back seat to the men's stories sometimes and especially when um this film started it was Right about a few months after I started making the film, um, Trump was elected and all my friends went down to Washington to march for, for, the, for women's rights and to celebrate women. And that was really on my mind when I was making this film and giving voice to women and women's stories. So I really wanted to celebrate women in the film and just you know have a film completely dedicated to women's stories because you know it's so rare that you get to have something like that and I, there was celluloid closet which which celebrated uh the whole 
queer cinema, um, men and women's films. But even though when you're when you're trying to like weave back and forth between the two, it you know you don't get the nuances and details that you might when you focus on on a smaller group. You know, you you mentioned the women's march there, and is is art and specifically, I guess you know the lesbian cinema culture is that inherently tied to to feminism um it's a complicated relationship with the women's movement in in lesbian history i know early on uh there was the lavender menace which is how people talked about lesbians and there was definitely infights infighting in the um in the women's in the feminist movement so um yeah, it's it's definitely uh, they're separate. The there's they're separate things, but they overlap obviously, and um, they both have come a long way. And people have gotten better at um, you know communicating and 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 working together. So you know, you you talked about you know a filmmaker like Robert Town who did Thelma and Louise, or that film from the eighties. I forget the name, but the one with uh, Muriel Hemingway. I think best. Uh, with with the track athletes, you know, uh, these these queer stories or or these lesbian stories that were written and and, and told by men, um, how what did that do for the I guess the, the the lesbian culture or or what what prompt what what did those types of films do to to prompt change from these 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 queer filmmakers to tell their own stories? Yeah, um, I think that seeing a film like Personal Best with um, the track stars was definitely really exciting for a lot of people at the time to see that film come out with the two women at its center. Um, and that was really groundbreaking for the time. But at the same time, to have it be from a man's perspective is a little problematic. And I think it doesn't sort of take it all the way when you have someone speaking from their own perspective, that authenticity you get when someone's telling their own story is so special and so important. So I think while the earlier films that were directed by men were really great in a lot of ways because they got that visibility out there, there was also problems with it. And you definitely saw um, there were films like sexploitation films where lesbians were, um, you saw films where lesbians were vampires or just overly sexualized. And this was definitely a man's perspective of a lesbian. So when it came time for women to be able to create their own films and be in control of their own narrative, I think that was a big turning point. Uh, that brings up the idea of, of male gaze and female gaze, because, you know, for so long, a lot of overly sexual films have been told from the male gaze and then as, as soon as a woman did that whether it was about you know a female gaze about a man or even a, a woman there was enormous pushback on that um how do you think where do you think we've come in in terms of that conversation mm -hmm. um it's like at this point i feel like i i'm not i'm definitely not the best person to, to talk about the male gaze and there's a lot of great extensive writing about it out there. And, and I remember when I was speaking with um, Sue Friedrich, she said in the 80s, this was like a big thing that was on everybody's mind. And, you know, um, wait, sorry, can you oh, repeat your question? Yeah, uh, ma male gaze and versus female gaze and how 
female gaze was frowned upon when it first came in as sort of, mm. you know, un, maybe like unnatural for a, a, you know, a woman to be talking about that or, or thinking like that. But, mm. you know, where we are now within our culture and sort of the strides that have been made for, you know, human rights and being more open about sexuality, where do you think we are in acceptability of, of those types of stories, I guess? Um, I think we're in a good place. I'd have, to, I can't really speak to the, to the quote unquote female gaze. I mean, I guess I have my own, but I don't, I don't know that that's a tough question. I think I feel like I need to do a little more research before I speak specifically to that. But I just think we are in a really great place for, um, for women filmmaking, uh, for women's filmmaking. I feel like people like Desiree Akavan are, are making great projects and, um, there's just been a real change in culture with more people wanting to get women to direct a lot of acknowledgement about how few women, how few films are directed by women. I mean, we still have a really long way to go, but at least people are talking about it and trying to make change because yeah, I, I feel like, uh, let's try the female gaze for a change. Cause we've seen a lot of films from a male perspective. That's all I can say. You you mentioned vampires, and I forget who it was in the film that sort of made the made the joke about les vampires are always portrayed as lesbians and vice versa. But it strikes me something like that, or you 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 look at the 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 sci-fi genre, you know, even something like like Star Trek, where perhaps the idea of of lesbian romance or or queer relationships is is not as political. It's just a thing because it's it's this other sort of worldly type of story. Are 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 there certain genres you think that lend themselves to to queer stories and and queer relationships more than others, or or certain types of filmmaking? Um, I don't know about that. Um, I just feel like to have just like your standard romantic comedy have a lesbian story is just something people really like love and it took so long just to get something like that you know out there um i think uh i tend toward period pieces over sci-fi like looking back i think over looking forward but um yeah there's great films take place in the past that you know a lot of stories that still need to be uncovered uh, the problem with looking back is that there was they were so secret and it's hard to find them but i i love stories from the past and um it's it was it's sort of like now we're getting into a time where it is very sort of normal and normalized and something about the while on the one hand it was really sad that people had to be secret i mean there's something kind of sexy about having to sneak around and i always like kind of like thinking about that in a way just as a you know, uh, uh, a, th a thought experiment, you know, what it must have been like. I, I experienced it a little bit in my own life growing up and when I first came out, sort of having to sneak around. But yeah, I think all, all genres can have um, queer stories and they all should, so. Why do you think it, you know, there's always been queer stories, whether it's, it's, it's men or women, but I, I feel like in terms of mainstream acceptance that perhaps lesbian cinema took a little longer to be accepted than 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 gay cinema is that just because our culture is still largely run by men do you th 
you know, or, or were there some other factors at play, do you think? Yeah, I think it's harder for women to get films made for funding reasons because of the power structure of the industry, for sure. It's always harder for women to make films, whether they're gay or straight, and uh, unfortunately, even harder for, for gay uh, filmmakers. So yeah, I think definitely about the, the power struggle going on in, in Hollywood and, and in the indie movement, too. You, you mentioned, you know, gay filmmakers and, and you have people like Desiree or, um, you know, Lisa Cholodenko who who are who are queer filmmakers and make gay, you know, queer stories like Kids Are All Right, mm -hmm. uh, Miseducation of Cameron Post. But then you have somebody like Kimberly Pierce, who is a queer filmmaker, but doesn't necessarily make queer stories all the time. So that brings up the question of what is then queer cinema? Is it stories about queer people or is it stories by, you know, that are directed by queer people that aren't necessarily about that culture? Yeah, I think it's up for debate. Um, I think uh, it's both. Um, I actually had the privilege of meeting Kimberly Pierce recently on a film I made called The Renegades and we were talking about trans stories and how that fit into the whole um, equation. And yeah, I think these lines are sort of becoming more nebulous and, you know, um, I guess queer filmmakers who are making queer stories, that sort of sounds like queer cinema to me. But um, yeah, I, think, I feel like that's probably the most authentic um, uh, definition of queer cinema. But if you're interested in learning more about what is queer cinema, there's a lot of books out there, including the one by B. Ruby Rich, which I uh, read uh, as I was um, doing research for the film, which is a great introduction to the concept of a new queer cinema. Yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, trans characters. And of course, Kimberly did Boys Don't Cry. And the last, you know, I guess even five years, we're seeing trans characters really have their moment you've got people like uh laverne cox out there who's who's doing good work um where do you think we are in terms of expanding knowledge of lgbtq culture as a whole whether it's gay lesbian bi trans you know people are showing that there's a series about polyamorous relationships now i think asexuality is gonna have its moment um how how does that add to to the overall queer culture and queer cinematic experience? Yeah, I think the more we can sort of open up and realize that we're, you know, a quilt of many colors and we have many different kinds of people in our community and the LGBT community and all the initials that we've added over the years. Um, it's just, we're all here for each other. We're all here to hear each other's stories. The more we can support each other, the better. Uh, the more strength we'll have as a as a as a community as a voting block um, and as a audience that's going to support each other's films so um i think the more we evolve the you know that's only there's only one way we can evolve which is forward and um having more you know our attitudes change uh can can evolve toward each toward each other and learning all the different nuances and all the different identities and getting you know more and more um just open about it and not have you know some people want to have a very strict sort of definition of themselves and uh, i think there is some pushback about 
how I've named the film Dyke's Camera Action, because does that really sort of, um, does that make everyone into, you know, what is a dyke and is that just a certain kind of lesbian? Does that mean you can talk about, you know, so these, I liked the, the title because it rhymed with lights, camera action, and, it, and I liked that it, you know, sort of, you know, it's, it sort of gave me a compass for what the film would be about. And, you know, so there's a lot of like um, um, words and definitions, but I think at the bottom on, you know, the underlining message is that we need to be tolerant of all types of people and all types of gender expressions and all types of sexual orientations. You know, on I know you mentioned off the top how the word queer was first used as sort of a political statement and this this idea of dyke, you know, you have the dyke march. Is that sort of the same thing? Because I know at least from if you're looking at it from like a like a cishet white perspective, I think dyke is a very or has the appearance of a very specific type of lesbian, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the, you know, the short hair, maybe, you know, a, a little more butch, like, like someone like, like Ruby, right? Like that's, that's sort of your, your stereotypical, but it is, how, how political is that word, do you think, especially today? It's funny when it depends on who you're talking to. I think it's made a real uh, return in, in the culture. I think it's sort of a beloved word to people. I think uh, younger lesbians sort of just coming into the identity, like to embrace the word. I see it on shirts more. And whereas, you know, growing up, it was definitely a derogatory term. And I think uh, Dykes appropriated the word from people who were using it in a derogatory way. And they they now own that word because, you know, they, they it's, it's, it's tricky though, because I feel like um, sometimes, you know, people who are not gay or who feel uncomfortable saying the, the word dyke, and I understand why. Um, and I think the word has evolved too, like a lot of words. It, it maybe started out, uh, you know, a very specific sort of woman or person, but now I feel like I hear it both ways. I hear people saying I'm a dyke, like, and maybe they're, you know, just saying they're a lesbian. Um, yeah, but I, I, I liked the word. It also, it reminded me of the 90s, kind of, there was the, the book that came out, I think it was, it's, I always get it met, 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 mixed up. It's like something, spikes, slackers, and dykes. It was a famous right. book that came out in the 90s, so it's sort of like a reference to that and the dyke march. And, and, and the more I, you know, was researching and watching films from the, t- from the history, I saw the word over and over again. So I just felt like it was a great, I just liked it. And I, and I wanted to, to have that cult- cultural reference. So. And, and you have archival footage, I think, of, of one of the first dyke marches um, in the States. And I was curious, you know, Pride is now a big thing. Like we're in Pride Month and, and there's the Pride Parade. But there is a there is a sense among some of the friends that I talked to that pride is still very white and mm. still very gay male. Is yes. in in your research for this is that do you think that's one of the reasons why the Dyke March started? It was it was sort of like the 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 pride march for for women or for you know non non cis men so to speak. Definitely. It started out as a protest and it's still to this day, they don't get a permit from the city, at least here in New York. Um, It was a response to the 
increasingly corporate um, gay pride events that were happening in New York City. And it was a space for women to march because, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about gay men, but they do tend to steal the spotlight. Um, and, you know, it was, I think, a safe space for, for women to march. And um, I'm happy to say it's still going on. I guess this year we can't do it, sadly, but um, I was really excited to meet the lesbian Avengers, some of the lesbian Avengers who started the march. Um, and I don't know if a lot of younger people who are out there marching and like, you know, who were there last year don't even know about the lesbian Avengers. They know about the Dyke March. But um, so I was happy to educate people about who started the Dyke March in the film. You know, you, you, you mentioned the, the corporatization of it. And I remember I went to my first, with an organization, my first Pride March in 2011, I think it was, in Vancouver. And I was struck by how many, you know, like big banks or, 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 or big businesses had floats. And it struck me like, okay, are they actually pro-LGBTQ or is this just a big business opportunity? Can there be room for capitalism in LGBTQ activism, I guess? Yeah, well, that was actually a theme of the film, how as um, gay people and lesbians became more mainstream, so did the films. And partly that was because, you know, people, bigger studios realized there was an audience for it. And as they become mainstream, it becomes more, you know, part of corporate America, you know, the corporation um, vibe of American culture. So there's there are things that are lost and things that are gained when we become more mainstream. And I am always nostalgic for the early days, the, you know, gritty um, sort of, you know, grassroots, um, you know, outsider. I always want to learn more about um, how people organized, you know, in the nineties was such a, was such a great time for all that when, gay people were still sort of on the on the outsider, you know, part of culture, but also things were changing, more visibility. And um, so, yeah, I feel like now, especially I live in Brooklyn, I, I see a lot of lesbians around and it feels very normal here. But then if you go to another part of the country, um, you'll, you'll, I still, when I travel other places, I feel a little different when I go to more um, places where there's less of a gay community. So um, America is a vast place and progress sort of happens in different places at different times. So I think it's still so important to get these films out and to reach people maybe in places where they aren't seeing as many gay people. You know, and, and on that note, there was, I think, it, I forget it was, I think it might have been Sue that talked about one of the first films she saw, but it was, it was a European film. I think it, it was French yeah. and it had that extended love scene. What did you notice in your research about just how, you know, lesbian culture, LGBTQ culture was discussed in, in Europe in, in the 70s and 80s and the films that were, that were being made there versus what we were seeing in North America in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, I think... Europe has always been a little more, I mean, certain places. I learned, actually learned a lot when I was traveling with the film. But um, I know in certain places like, you know, in France, um, 
uh, people have different attitudes towards sex versus in Italy where, where it's like, you know, a Catholic culture. Um, but I think the films coming out of, of, Fran of France definitely express the, 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 that culture's attitude towards sex versus the US, which is a little more buttoned up about sex and a little more uptight. But um, when I did go, I went to visit, I went and screened the film um, in Italy and I was talking to them about, I was like, you know, Europe people are so laid back about sex and they're like, actually no, like I, it sounds like, sounded a lot like how I grew up in Texas, um, having the film screen in, in Italy and, and sort of hearing, learning about their, um, their attitudes there and, and what a big deal, you know, it, it is to screen gay films there. So yeah, I think, you know, before um, the gay movement took off here in, in the United States, um, there people would have to find these images from other countries. Yeah, for sure. And what, what did you learn, I guess, about the coming out process for people in different countries? You know, you, you said you're from Texas and, you know, I, I sometimes I feel like maybe young people today, it's like they come out, but it's not a a, a big huge thing like mm -hmm. like it used to be because there's you know there's more acceptability more, more support mm -hmm. what did you learn about that at all either coming out in, in different cultures or or in different times for for women of different ages yeah i mean i it was cool to um track that in the film talking to people of different ages and hearing you know hearing barbara hammer talk about coming out um she grew up in the 50s and she came out i guess when she was 30 and this was late 60s 70s and she had never heard the word lesbian before and someone else thought she might be because she wore pants all the time and and then you know um it was so interesting to hear uh just throughout the ages the the, the different people's experience leading up to i mean even though you know, that people who come from um, different countries still experience, even today, still experience a rough road um, coming out. I know Desiree, who's around my age, talks about how she doesn't feel safe traveling back to her home country um, of, and in the, in the Middle East because she's, um, is scared for her life. And so, you know, it's, it's sure there has been a lot of progress and depending on where you live, you know, it's, it's easier, but um, I think it's still hard. I think it's even as, even as we get for further and further, it, I think it'll always be tough because we're always going to be outsiders. We'll always be the minority. Um, and our culture is filled with images of straight people and, and sort of geared toward images geared toward straight people. So it's just, it'll always be tough, no matter how old, you know, no matter how much we evolve as a culture, it'll, I think there'll always be a little struggle in it, but I think we've gotten better um, a little bit um, with, you know, celebrating gay people and showing, showing the stories. You, you mentioned Desiree, another person interviewed in the film is uh, Cheryl Dunn. Uh, for you as, as a storyteller, how important was it for you to include, um, queer people of color, you know, with, with everything that's happening right now with, 
you know, BLM and the indigenous rights movement. And, you know, even we're seeing, you know, um, I think Dan Savage calls it like interqueer racism in, in, <laughs> yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Um, how important was it for you to have POC voices in a story like this? Seriously important. Um, that was the goal early on was to, it was extremely important to have black, you know, people of color um, in the film. That was from early on, I was like, I cannot just have this be all white people. Like that would be the worst. And, and, and I still heard some criticism that it was a little, it was white centric and I was doing everything I could to cast people of color. I got Vicky Du, an incredible Asian filmmaker, Cheryl Dunier and others. And, and the thing was that, you know, Cheryl Dunier says it herself. She's like, I looked back at the history and couldn't find any of these films. So that's why I started. So um, having her in the film was everything to me. It was so important. Um, and I was so honored that she was able to do it. And, and, I, and I'm glad to educate people about her who didn't know about her yet. And, you know, to uh, um, inspire people to explore her work and other um, people of color's work. You know, it, it seems like every, I guess, you know, 10, maybe 20 years in any genre, if, if you want to call queer cinema a genre, there's always uh, a seminal film. Watermelon Woman was one, you know, even I think But I'm a Cheerleader was one in, in different ways because it was about sort of fantasy and young people. And then, of course, the kids are all right um, getting to the Oscars. Um, and, of course, Barbara Hammer. But for you making this film, what, what would you consider some of the most seminal and important work in, in, in queer fiction in the last 40, 50 years? Well, I mean, um, I gotta say Go Fish was really important. That sort of kicked things off in sort of a wide stream sense, um, having a, the success that it did at Sundance. And Rose Trochet is an incredible person and so charismatic. And, and not only is she a great filmmaker, but she made for an excellent uh, interview subject. Um, she's so funny and so uh, wise. and. That was really fun to get to talk to her. Um, thinking back on, I mean, more recently, uh, Carol was a great one. I love Todd Haynes's work. Um, uh, um, let's see, you know, so many. I've got so many films here on my uh, on my shelf that I always like to reference when I'm doing these because it's easier just to try to think of them. Oh yeah, this one was good. Oh yeah, this one. This one's good. Um, okay, I'll talk about these. Oh yeah, this one. Oh, and this one. <laughs> All right, so. Born in Flames, if we're talking about people of color, this is an excellent film to check out. It is um, a really cool and authentic, authentic look into just lesbian culture in the 70s. Um, actually, it came out in 83, but they definitely probably filmed a lot of, you know, some of the footage in the late 70s. And it's just, it's just like people in a community. I don't even know if they're really actors or 
Um, I think they just sort of collected people that were around and, and made, you know, that film and it's excellent. And then Desert Heart, Desert Hearts is a very important one, especially uh, for people that were sort of coming of age in the 80s. Um, this film was a big deal, directed by Donna Deitch. Um, it's, it's like a very seminal work and a lot of women of a certain age, when they're thinking back on their favorite film, will reference this one. Um, this is one of my favorites, High Art. I, I love this movie. I loved it growing up. It's extremely sad, but at the time I didn't feel that it was very sad. I was just excited about the movie and seeing, you know, the Ali Sheedy and she's so cool. And um, she's, this woman's name is, I guess she, I didn't see her in as many things after that, Rada Mitchell, but they were awesome. And this movie was so cool and I loved it. I know Desiree mentions this one in the film. We're kind of the same age. So I think for people our age, this is like the one. And then shout out to the incredibly true adventures of two girls in love. This one is really awesome because it stars um, the woman who went on to be in L Word. And I... she plays, um, she plays a sort of butch character in this one, but she's more femme in the L Word. And um, I can't, see her name right now but oh yeah laurel holloman right yes and so she is awesome and she, she's in this one and there's one more i don't know if i have it on my shelf show me love oh that I is love to recommend show me love i must say show me love is one of my all-time favorite films um yeah my uh my producing and my producing partner and I actually just rewatched it back in March. Um, yeah. I've always, I don't know why, but I've always loved that film. Um, it's so I, great. And sadly, the director died. And I know she was a close friend of Rose. Close friends of Rose. Wait, Lu no, Lucas Moody soon directed. Show oh, Me sorry, sorry. I'm thinking of another one. I retract that statement. He's, Show My Love is a good one. <laughs> he's still alive to my knowledge. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I'm thinking of another one, but Show Me Love's a good one. I wish I could find the other one that I'm thinking of, but I can't. Anyway, those are there's there's too many to to name. You know, your your DVD collection brings me back to sort of how how Netflix got its start. You know, and I think it was um, Vicky who was talking about that's how she discovered um, a lot of queer films. And you know, in in this age that we're in of like the golden you know the second golden age of television and and all streaming, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. What is what has that done for just exposure and awareness of queer stories? It's been great. I mean, it just means more access to for people to be able to find the films. And you know, back in the day before all that, it was really hard to find these films. And like they would be stopped at the international border because people would try to order them from other countries, and they would be stopped. And, or, you know, they'd have to get them through illegal means or whatever. Even, you know, growing, when I was, I would go to Blockbuster or, and then in college, I remember I would get the DVDs in the mail and, um, or I'd have to go to my library and watch them there or something. So I, having them online is incredibly great. I think for, you know, people in places that's not New York City or LA to be able to get 
you know, see these films. I think it's great. Um, you know, another aspect of this film, a lot of the people that you talked to were, were filmmakers, but they, they were also um, activists. Uh, is art in, inherently political? Um, and, and especially when you're talking about, about a subject like this, is it always going to be political? Is it always going to have some activist slant? Or, or can we just let queer stories be queer stories? I think art is political and always, and being gay, because being gay is political. Just literally yesterday, we had this landmark case um, pass where LGBT people are finally protected in the workplace. Um, you know, so yes, it's political. And I think when art has urgency and meaning, that's when it's at its best. And so, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, and no, you know, I, you know, <laughs> you, you can't just like leave, you know, I think the second part of your question was, can we ever just have um, it not be, you know, if just be, it's kind of hard to live in a vacuum. I mean, you might like, you know, be walking down the street happily with your boyfriend holding hands and then you might be in your own little world, but then you're actually in the bigger world and you might hear a gay slur being hurled at you. So yes, I think it, it is a political thing. I, you know, years ago, I, I had the fortune of talking with Tab Hunter, you know, who of course was oh, wow. a, a great actor, you know, gay actor, but n wasn't necessarily open at the time. And we talked about how we're, we're seeing more gay characters and, you know, they, they may not be leads and we're not seeing gay actors in, in lead roles. Where are you in terms of straight actors playing LGBTQ characters, you know, gay, gay actors playing gay characters and even gay actors playing, playing straight characters? Um, I think it's extremely important for, um, for gay people to play gay roles and for trans people to play trans roles. And, you know, because I just know the one reason is because, you know, watching these films and feeling like I'm seeing another person have these emotions, which I feel weird about. And then to find out that they're actually just acting and they're not really gay. Like that was always such a heartbreaker for me, you know, growing up and, I just think it's more authentic to have, you know, people um, play the role of their, you know, that they have life experience with. So yeah, I'm a real advocate for that. Um, even though there's been great films where straight people are playing gay roles, I mean, it, I just think it's it's better if we can strive for more authenticity in casting. Uh... What about... Okay, sorry. Time out. The film I was trying to think of is called All Over Me. All Over Me. 1997. Okay. And that is a great film. Director Alex Sitchell, Sitchell, I'm not sure how you spell it, but she did pass. And that's the film I was thinking of. Okay, yeah, and it was written, look here, it's written by her sister. Uh, yeah. Sophie. Okay. That's a good one. Check it out. All over me. All right, I will add it to the list. Oh, it's got a great soundtrack too. Annie DeFranco, Slater Kinney. Yes, it's like 1997, serious 90s vibes. Excellent. Um, yeah, j just to pick up on, on what we were talking about a moment ago with, with you know, gay, gay characters being portrayed by gay actors. What about the reverse of gay actors 
playing straight characters. You know, like we like for example, we had you know someone like Neil Patrick Harris, right, who's very out and proud and played the raging, you know, heterosexual Barney in in in, in How I Met Your Mother, before yeah. people, you know, before he was actually out, you know. Um, where where are you on on that? You know, because I'm less concerned with uh, finding ways to protect straight people or the people that have more power in society. So I'm less concerned with that. I think I make films for the underdog, for the underrepresented, and that's who I I really am most concerned about protecting. And until everyone's completely equal, then we don't need to worry about straight white people's feelings as much. <laughs> Not right. that they're not valid and important, but we're trying to make change for, for, for minority people. Uh, and I think it was also talked about in the film, the, the idea in general of, of women filmmakers. You know, I think we own, I mean, um, oh, I forget her name, but the, the woman who won director for The Hurt Locker, you know, she was like... Catherine Bigelow? Yeah, she was, I think, yeah. only, I think she was only the fourth or fifth woman ever nominated for best director and she was the first one ever to win like before her it was uh Sofia Coppola, Jane Campion, I think Lainey Raffenstahl might have been nominated or something mm -hmm. I can't remember um and it was only a few years ago that we saw the first uh I think the first female cinematographer nominated uh mm -hmm. for, for for Mudbound. How do you think we're doing in in terms of of women behind the scenes, whether it's as a director or as a cinematographer or, you know, even, um, you know, studio heads now and, and, and producing? I think there's been little bits of change, but not the landslide kind of change that we need. So um, we just have to keep watching it. I mean, these these nominations that have come in last year, I know people are, there's a lot of pressure on the Academy right now to, to show proof that they're not, you know, um, misogynistic, racist, uh, you know, organization. So I just think, yes, there's like been some small crumbs, you know, and small, you know, nominations, but I think still every single best picture where we're all directed by men or all the, I don't know if in the last in the last Academy Awards. So um, yeah, I mean we're getting somewhere, but we still have a long way to go. You know, on that note, there's you know just briefly on the Academy. You know, there was this thing about Oscars so wide, or you know not having enough nominations for females. Do, does the Academy have a responsibility to nominate you know a certain amount of of you know? Uh, a minority for for these big awards or is it more the fact that there's just aren't enough opportunity for minority groups to make stories um it's probably that i think you know these are deeply rooted societal issues and we only see the symptoms of them and you know uh when it's too late so yeah i mean it's it's definitely i think the way the voting system happens at the academy is that the members vote and so it's probably we have to look at the membership of the academy and see who's who's part of the academy and that's who's voting and you know why did those people make it to where they were in life and it's because of you know larger societal um um processes that you know got these people to where they are and 
I studied sociology as an undergrad, so I have an appreciation for these things, and that really has shaped my filmmaking brain, and I think that's why I'm so drawn to documentaries, since it's so often about, you know, social problems and thinking about the world in that way, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a deeply rooted thing. Um, I'm glad we're finally talking about it. I'm glad that um, so much, you know, at least we got this great uh, decision yesterday with the Supreme Court. Um, it looks like they're, they're trying to make changes in police departments across America. And hopefully these things will, you know, happen in the film world too. What does it mean for you to be a queer filmmaker, queer storyteller, especially one who's focused on documentary and, and, and true life stories? I mean, it's a dream come true. I, I sometimes still can't believe I get to do this and it's definitely a uh, major passion. Um, I love it so much. I love pe the people I meet through it. And uh, yeah, it's it's awesome. It's, it's definitely, I, you have to use your power for good and, you know, make films about, um, you know, raise up these stories. So I, I really hope to keep going and, and find new stories to tell um, in the, for the queer community and people of color and everything. One of the people that has been referenced a lot in this interview, Barbara Hammer, uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately passed after the, the film was complete in, in 2019. Um, what did she mean to, to the community, both the queer community and the filmmaking community? Um, she was a giant. She was a, a big name. Um, most people who were in the film world, especially the lesbian film world, knew of her and thought of her as a foremother. Um, and she was just uh, a real unique person, extremely prolific. She made so many films throughout her career. I think we were, I did a little talk with her um, uh, partner um, <clears throat> and she said she, made almost maybe a hundred films or at least or made it to a hundred or was trying to get to a hundred before she died. And, you know, she just, uh, was really, um, an important person. And I'm so glad that I got to talk to her and, and have her be part of the film. And what do you want the audience watching this film, specifically ones who perhaps don't identify as lesbian to, to take away from this project? Yeah, that was the thing. Like, the film is, I think, great for a wide audience. I think for a lot of the, you know, lesbians watching, they might know a lot of the information already or have heard of the films before. Some maybe haven't, and maybe they did learn something new. But I think um, to, to get people outside the community to watch was really a good thing. I my dad watched it and I was really excited for him to see it and to learn something because I feel like that's probably the, the demographic that needs to learn the most about this stuff. Um, so it's definitely a film for the community, but for people outside of the community too, to, to have some exposure and to learn a little bit about history. Well, the film is Dyke's camera action. Um, and it's, is it streaming? Is it out? We're, yeah, we've been having a number of um, virtual releases going on. Uh, we had one with the Roxy recently. Um, and then 
I can send you information about the next one coming up, but I don't have it at the moment. I, I need to. But um, it is available streaming um, through virtual release, and it's available on DVD through Frameline. Perfect. Well, I encourage uh, all the listeners of the podcast to check it out. Caroline Burrow, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. All righty. Have a good one. All right, please edit that. <laughs> edit it out. And that was my interview with filmmaker Caroline Burler. Her documentary, Dyke's Camera Action, on the history of lesbian queer cinema, is out now. That does it for me today. My guests next week will be horror icon Bill Oberst Jr., That's coming up on Monday, and then Thursday, you will hear from Canadian actor Reese Thompson, starring in the new film, The Fox Hunter. Stay safe, stay healthy. I hope everyone had a good Juneteenth. Keep on fighting the good fight, and I will see you next time. Goodbye for now. Artists like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>